Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Tuesday, March the 30th, 2004. Those who knew Deshaun Brown knew this wasn't like him at all. He was excited about beginning his new job at the Gundarina. Too excited to blow off his first day. He was very close to his family. Too close not to be answering their calls or stopping by for a free meal. And right there was his car, parked in the drive. Where would he have gone without it? Deshaun's grandfather, Earl Thomas, and his Aunt Angela Thomas walked up the steps to the door of his Akron apartment and rapped loudly. There was no answer from behind the locked door. What's this, Angela said, her hand reaching out to a small hole in the window the very window Deshaun always peered out before answering a knock. But it was a rhetorical question. She knew a bullet hole when she saw one. There was a bucket on the porch. Angela flipped it over and climbed onto it to get a better view inside Deshaun's apartment. She saw dark red smears on both sides of a doorframe inside. She screamed. Earl wanted to see. Angela steadied her father-in-law as he climbed onto the bucket next. He took in the scene. It was blood all right, and not just on the doorframe. Blood was everywhere. Earl cried out. Somebody killed my grandson. From Ohio Mysteries, The Akron Beacon Journal and BeaconJournal.com. This is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Akron Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my Ohio Mysteries co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved, Episode 10, Deshaun Brown. Mischievous, and he was always had a snack in his hand, eating donuts. His favorite thing was to eat donuts. He loved to play sports. 
He loved to be around family. Yes. He loved to pull out practical jokes. We was practical jokes one time. Um, <laughs> this probably was, I shouldn't say this, but one time I had one of those flashing blue lights and I was going down the street and I put it on top of my car. <laughs> and he thought it was the police after it. <laughs> he thought it was the police after it. We got here, he found out it was me. We always pull practical jokes on him. But um, they always say he was my favorite. That's Darlene, one of Deshaun's aunts and the sister of his mother. We asked if anyone in the family would like to join us to talk about Deshaun. It would have been easier to ask if there was anyone who didn't. On a recent spring day, the home of Earl Thomas in Akron's North Hill neighborhood filled with relatives. Deshaun and his brother Stephen were raised in this two-story home in the 80s and 90s by their mom Fanny, by their grandparents, and by their doting aunts who babysat them. On this day, in addition to Grandpa Earl, Mom Fanny, and Brother Stephen, there were aunts Darling Thomas, Angela Thomas, and Yvonne Small, and an assortment of cousins, nieces, and nephews who were either very young or yet to be born when Deshaun was murdered. And yet even they understand how his absence left a hole in this close-knit clan. Deshaun coached peewee football at Patterson Park, and one of the last things he did was help his young niece put up a basketball hoop that Saturday. And he always loved kids. You know, as he got older, he loved little kids. He loved playing. Yeah. He was just a big kid. Yes, he was a big kid. Everybody liked him. Yes. He didn't have no, no enemies. He got along with everybody, you know. Deshaun was also a focal point of his family because he was a standout football star. It's not an activity his mom would have chosen for him. Yeah, because I didn't want him to play, and I remember my dad telling me, he's a boy. Let him play. I was afraid he was going to get hurt. And my dad said, he's a boy. Deshaun became a running back for the North High School Vikings. Well, not just a running back. But Akron's finest, a five foot eleven, one hundred and ninety pound natural with a perfect blend of speed, finesse, and power. He was named the All City Offensive Player of the Year two years in a row. In nineteen ninety one, his senior year, he scored thirteen touchdowns, rushing for nearly twelve hundred yards. It earned him a full scholarship at the University of Akron. Fanny leafed through a scrapbook of yellowed newspaper clippings. They played against Garfield. I'll never forget this, that it was the first time in history that a player from North High School had done that. The family piled into the bleachers for those games, under clear skies or beneath umbrellas or shivering in the cold. Fanny worked at Dillard's department store at Rolling Acres Mall, and on nights, she couldn't join them to her son's game. Security officers who had access to a radio would report the play-by-play to her. It was a magical time. But it almost went off the rails. The NCAA had a rule that required students to maintain a 2.0 grade point average and meet minimum scores on their SAT or ACT. 
student-athletes who couldn't meet that standard had to sit out their freshman year. And so Deshaun began Akron U benched. He could have become disillusioned or given up football altogether. A year is a long time to ask a young man to put his dreams on a shelf. But bolstered by the encouragement of his family and his coaches, he stayed busy. He got a couple of jobs, one at a downtown restaurant, another working for a potato chip company. He lifted weights in his basement workout room and ran around the university track. And he studied. The fall of 1993, he was back on the field. He scored three touchdowns in his first two games as a sophomore. The next year, as a junior, he led the Zips in rushing and scoring. But injuries plagued him both seasons, and he missed multiple games. His coaches always sounded hopeful that things would settle down for him. His running back coach, Rudy Sharkey, told a reporter late in 1994, What we've seen are flashes of greatness. We really haven't seen him at the top of his game yet, but we will. Unfortunately, one youthful misadventure ended Deshaun's football career. In 1995, he and a childhood friend, who also played for the Zips, got caught using a crowbar to break into the dormitory room of another teammate. The teammate pressed charges, and Akron U's new football coach had a zero-tolerance policy for shenanigans. Deshaun was cut from the team. He regretted, he really regretted, yes, regretted he that. Yes. That slipped him back. A coach helped him get into another college in Pennsylvania, and he played a little more ball, but gave it up when his girlfriend back home got pregnant. He returned to Akron and his job at the potato chip factory, then later making deliveries for an office furniture company. By 2004, Deshaun was 29 years old, unmarried, but a father of three who loved spending time with his children. He was also excited about a new opportunity. His uncle, who worked for operations at the Gund Arena in Cleveland, helped him land a job on the cleaning crew. He was to start the job on Tuesday, March the 30th, 2004. Franny last saw her son two days earlier, that Sunday. He come back to eat dinner. He came late, about seven and seven o'clock in the evening. He had greens, cornbread, and chicken, his favorite. His favorite. And he left, and uh, he said that he was going to get with his boys. And I remember telling him, I said, "I'll call you tomorrow." He said, "No, ma, don't call me tomorrow. I'm sowing my wild oats because I'm starting a job on Tuesday." That's what mm-hmm. he told me. So I, I, I never, I didn't buy, I called him though anyway, but he didn't answer. I called him that Monday and he didn't, when I got home from work and he didn't answer. And so I said, well, whoever this girl with, he would, he, she must be really good. That's what I thought to myself, <laughs> you know, I, did, I didn't tell my mom that cause she asked me how to talk to him cause she said he hadn't called her and he would call her every day, but it never even dawned on me that anything was wrong. And I didn't hear from him that Monday, that Tuesday morning, I got up and went to work. 
That morning, Deshaun's uncle drove past his place on the way to work. Deshaun lived in a house that had been carved up into three apartments at the corner of Cuyahoga Street and Reed Terrace. Deshaun's car was in the drive. The uncle was running late, so he didn't stop, fully expecting Deshaun would be following soon after. But when the uncle got to Cleveland and Deshaun failed to arrive for the start of his shift, he called his wife Angela. Something's wrong, they agreed. Angela hurried to Deshaun's apartment. Earl Thomas, who had also learned by now that his grandson hadn't shown up for work, arrived right behind her. Angela walked up the back steps of the home, where the entrance to the apartment was. She immediately spotted something strange in the window, a window she knew Deshaun always peered out to see who was on the other side of the door. But what is this hole in his glass? He was like, I don't know. So me being the combo that I am, you know, I'm analyzing everything, and I see a bucket half filled with water, and there's a rag in it, tip it over. Get on top. Now I'm looking through the window, and I see, like, right here where it's smeared on both sides. And I'm like, nah, Sean would keep this house clean, right? Yeah, he sure did. Let me go back, and then I was, oh, that looked like blood. Then when I looked down, I saw all this blood, and I started screaming for my father-in-law, and he was coming up the steps like three at a time. And I grabbed him and helped him up on the bucket, and I said, look down. And that's when he looked down, and he said, somebody killed my grandson. Akron police were on the scene by 9.15 a.m. They broke the front door open and entered. Akron Detective Dave Whidden didn't need anyone to tell him who Deshaun Brown was. He remembered when Deshaun ruled the gridiron. He was actually well-known around Akron because he was a really standout football player from North High School. There's been a lot of great athletes that have come from Akron, but Deshaun was, and I remember him uh, when he was playing for North, uh, spectacular athlete, and ended up getting a football scholarship to the University of Akron. Everyone was stunned that this is how things would end for him. The officers kicked in the door, and they found Deshaun's body on the living room floor. Uh, There's quite a bit of blood it was a very um, violent scene. There were no signs of any kind of forced entry. Uh, the officers pretty much figured out quickly that somebody had shot through the window at him. He was struck once in the left cheek, and just by the looks inside the apartment, um, he most likely suffered a great deal because there was just different blood uh, smears and different blood locations throughout in his bedroom, in the kitchen, in the living room. And uh, unfortunately, it does appear like he, he suffered quite a bit after he got shot. If Deshaun was on his feet long enough to move from room to room, why didn't he call for help? His assailant appears to have fled immediately after the shooting. Most likely, Widden said, he was disoriented. 
He was found holding a television remote control. Some have speculated he might have thought it was the phone. Police towed Deshaun's blue Oldsmobile Delta 88 to look for potential evidence. Akron firefighters climbed onto the roof with a ladder and searched the gutter and rooftop for shell casings. But investigators knew evidence was going to be hard to come by. If the shooting had been a quick hit and run, this wasn't a case that would be solved by DNA or fingerprints. While interviewing neighbors, investigators found a couple of witnesses who helped them frame a timeline. We found out uh, through the canvas that there were a couple of neighbors out there gun, a gunshot on Sunday night, uh, which would have been you know almost two days before we was found, and in fact, two, one uh, one of the witnesses actually saw a subject running from the back of the apartment. But we're pretty confident in saying that it probably happened maybe Sunday night. Both uh, the witnesses were consistent. They said it was a black male, and he was about 6'3", which would have been on the taller side. Uh, he was wearing dark clothing, and both of them described the subject wearing a three-length quarter coat, and he was uh, seen running down the street. Um, actually, one of the, and that would have been, according to one witness, about 11.30 on Sunday night, between 11.30 and midnight. And actually, uh, that witness in particular was one of our retired uh, police officers who was now deceased. Investigators also found a security camera on a neighboring building. And it did capture a shadowy form running from the scene that night. But even analysts from the FBI couldn't coax any clarity from the grainy image. It was worthless, except to confirm the hour the witnesses had already given to police. For the first several weeks, Akron had four or five investigators on the case, and they talked to numerous people in pursuit of a motive. One incident that piqued their interest was a bar fight Deshaun had gotten into a couple of weeks before the murder. And that was up at a bar on Howard Street that was um, frequented by like an older crowd. Uh, we never really had too many problems there. And we talked to the person he fought with. We talked to everybody that was involved there. And depending on who you talk to, um, you know, we knew even the, the guy that he was fighting with admitted that Deshaun got the better of him during the fight. But, you know, he, that, that particular person did have an alibi for the night of the murder. Uh, he said that he didn't even know, or he didn't know who Deshaun was or he didn't even know where he lived. Um, they were arguing about, you know, some people, we talked to other people that were there. And depending on who you talk to, it was either about money or about NBA basketball. I mean, that's where it ranged from. Um, we, we did talk to that person and we did find out about the fight, but... You know, to us, I don't think that really, you know, not to say that that person wasn't involved or what, or that wasn't the reason, but it just didn't, uh, just didn't make sense to us. An even more intriguing thought was that Deshaun's murder might have been a case of mistaken identity. The apartment below him had no regular resident, but for a couple of dogs that someone visited to take care of. Still, neighbors said there were a lot of brief comings and goings at that apartment. Between the dogs and the intermittent visits, they just figured there were drug transactions going on. The person that lived below him was known 
and, and to, to participate in that and we got some tips that maybe that Deshaun wasn't the intended target, that the person below him was the intended target. They just got the wrong apartment. It was we actually talked to that person, and, you know, from what he said, he just used it to – he really didn't stay there, but he used it to uh, keep his dogs there. We interviewed that person several times, um, you know, not really as a suspect, but as a potential victim, as a – as a, as a victim who they're really after, but unfortunately that didn't really lead to anything. Witten said the man who may have been the real target that night became a homicide victim himself in 2010. He was shot and killed in a car on Aberdeen Street, another case that has yet to be solved. Others wondered if Deshaun might have gotten involved with the wrong woman. He was a player in more ways than one. A real ladies' man, his family will admit. We uh, got his cell phone records, and he uh, he liked women. I mean, he had a lot of different girlfriends. Um, but, he, you know, like on the other hand, he, they always said he was a good father, too. But we interviewed a lot of the, most of the, um, the people we got from his cell phone records were girls that he was dealing with and, um, you know, seeing. And they all pretty much said the same thing. He was a nice guy. They all liked him, and... Um, They couldn't give us any direction on what might have happened to him. Deshaun had some marijuana in the apartment, but just enough for personal use. And police couldn't find any evidence of him owing money to dangerous people. So drugs and debt didn't seem to be likely motives. Widden doesn't like to single out one theory. He's open to all possibilities. But when pressed... I, I mean, I mean, I think that that mistaken identity angle is a strong one. That's just my opinion through, you know, having looked through all these interviews and listened to what people had to say about it. Um, and just because of, I mean, I, he did cooperate with us and he talked to us. But, you know, I think because, you know, that he really, he, he tells us he really didn't stay there that much. He was staying with a girlfriend in another location. Um we, we got most of the information about the mistaken identity, not from him, but through other sources and other tips. Deshaun's family members, however, universally do not like that theory. They're convinced that Deshaun would have peered out the window by his door that the killer standing on his second-floor darkened porch would have seen him clearly in the bright apartment, and that if someone had set out to make a hit on a drug dealer, they wouldn't be so careless to kill the wrong person. But beyond that, they can't venture a guess as to why someone would want to cause Deshaun harm. The not knowing weighs heavily on Fanny Brown, who fears that if she's right, if Deshaun was killed by someone he knew, then it might be someone the family still knows. Earl Thomas's home was a magnet for family and neighbors and local kids. Fanny was always pulling out extra plates at dinner time or dragging an extra chair onto the porch for a visitor. And my mom always told me, she said, you think you Everybody might want to know, but maybe somebody that know, you have so sit here and fed and put their feet up under your table and you have treated them nice. 
Right after Deshaun's funeral, one of his friends told Fanny he wanted to talk to her. Fanny and her father, Earl, went to meet him at a designated time, but the friend stood them up and pulled away from the family after that. Fanny doesn't want to believe that he knows something about her son's death, but she can't help but wonder. She can't help but think there are others who know exactly what happened that night, people who still refuse to come forward and bring them closure. Trust issues aside, Aunt Darlene said for a long time, friendly gatherings just weren't the same. The family had never lost someone to such violence before. For several years after his murder, his family took out classified ads in memory of Deshaun's birthday on April the 11th. And a lot of people didn't want to do things because, oh, Sean ain't here, you know, right. they felt like we can't celebrate and whatever. It took us a while to get yeah, over that. It took us a while to get over that. To be able to, to get do better. anything. Right. You know, because he was so missing links. Detective Whitten said he would give anything to solve this one for Deshaun's family. His family was the nicest people I've ever dealt with, I've ever met. And I could tell that there was a strong family bond there. I mean, they they called almost every, you know, pretty much every day, you know, when it happened. And I just remember talking to the family a lot. And, um, you know, I just felt bad because, they, you know, just like we do with all the victims' families that, you know, I, we just weren't getting enough information. If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call Detective Dave Whitten of the Akron Police Department at 330-375-2490. That's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.